welcome you to Easter Sunday morning. I was just thinking how different it is this year than last year when I was looking at a camera and none of you were here. I'm so grateful to see faces again today. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would turn with me as I read a passage of Scripture from the Gospel of John. I'm going to begin with verse 20, and I'm going to read 18 verses, verses 1 through 18. And the topic of the message today is encountering the risen Jesus. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, says this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen laying there that had been around Jesus' head, and the cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and cried out in Arabic, Rabboni, which is teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your God, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what, she told him that he had said these things to her. Father, over these next few moments, we are going to be presented with a word that is life transforming. I pray that through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you will lead us and guide us. Our hearts would understand and our spirits would respond. In Jesus' name, amen. If you went to your mailbox yesterday, and as you opened it, recognized that there was an envelope in there that looked rather official, and in the return side of it, you saw that it stated that it was from a law firm, and as you opened it, you recognized that the, the stationery looked rather expensive. It was embossed on the top, and it looked official, and as you read the letter, it stated that you had had a relative that had died and left you millions of dollars. It's likely that you would be very skeptical. In fact, in this day and age where we are scammed in so many different ways, and I did not know that there were 500,000 different numbers that could call you and tell you that your car needed a new warranty. <laughs> but this didn't come through your phone, and it didn't come through social media. Chances are you'd be skeptical, but you would check it out, wouldn't you? I mean, you wouldn't just throw it away without at least checking you would at least do a little research into it. 
Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is just like that. Today, whether you are in this room or whether you are watching online, maybe today you are really, really skeptical about it. But I need to tell you, the offer is just too good not to at least check into it today. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ does not offer you some vague, ethereal, immaterial afterlife, just like, well, you know, once you get through this, then there's something a little better on the other side. No, what what he is offering you is that you get a brand new body, you get to live in a brand new, perfect, renewed world, you get to live with those who have gone before you that have come to know Jesus in a brand new relationship, and you get to be with God forever. I mean, this is just, it's too good not to at least look into. And so I don't care how skeptical you are, I just want you to know today, listen closely because the offer of what is being given to you deserves your attention to at least look into it. And frankly, there's no better way for us to look into what is being presented than this particular passage of scripture from the Bible that I read today. Because it shows that the resurrection of Jesus and what he offers you through it is a remarkable package. It is something that is intensely rational. It's wonderfully merciful, and it is wonderfully personal. For those of you that are rational type people, and if you're taking notes, you can jot this down as your first point, what God is offering you today is unbelievably rational. Here's what I mean by that. Mary Magdalene finds an empty tomb. It wasn't what she expected to see, so she runs back to tell Peter and the apostle that is never named in this passage of Scripture, even though it's the book of John, and most of us believe that John is talking about himself as he's writing here. So Peter and John, after receiving this news, take off to begin to run to find where the tomb was, and John, being the youngest of the disciples, and obviously the faster, gets there first. And as he gets to the tomb, the scripture says he bends over and he looks on the inside and he sees, he sees strips of linen that are laying there, but he doesn't go in. And then Peter comes along, who any of you that know anything about Peter's nature, you know he is not standing at the door, he's going in. And so Peter rushes into the tomb, and the scripture says that he saw, he's, he's looking around at everything that took place in there, and he likewise sees the strips of linen, He sees the cloth that had been wrapped around the head of Jesus, and it's still lying separate from its place where it had been. Now, we look at this biblical passage, and and we ask ourselves the question, what is going on here that we need to know? Because when the Bible tells us that Peter ran into the tomb and saw, there's an interesting word in the Greek that's used here. In fact, there's two words in Greek for see. One of them is if you're just glancing at something and you see it, the word would be plebo. But this word in Greek indicates something else. In fact, this word in Greek is theoreo, which we get our word theorize from. And it is a word that means to observe something and look for an explanation which is really essentially rationalization. And so we look at this, and by the very way that it is written, it is intended for us to understand that there is some rational thought that went into the observance of the empty tomb. If you were looking this way, you're looking for evidence, you're looking for something, you're thinking as you're putting pictures, uh, pieces of the picture together. And in fact, that is exactly what is described with the way Peter went into the tomb and saw. He's theorizing, he's rationalizing, he's putting pieces together. 
And here is probably what Peter is thinking. Okay, this isn't what I expected. But if it was normal grave robbers that had taken the body of Jesus, why in the world would they have left behind the linen? And why in the world would they have left behind the spices? Because the linen and the spices were the most expensive part of what was in there. So if you're robbing a tomb, why would you leave the valuable things there? Robbers wouldn't have done that. And so he is seeing and rationalizing this in his mind. On the other side of that is this. If it was the disciples of Jesus that had rolled the stone away and broken in and stolen the body of Jesus, then as they're looking at the the linen that's laying there, why would they who loved Jesus so much dishonor his body by unwrapping it all and taking his naked body from the tomb? So Peter is thinking, he's reasoning, and so is John. And finally at the end, it says the disciple who reached the tomb first enters and he saw, and it says, and he believed. So we're introduced to three different people here and all of them have a different reaction. Mary sees, thinks somebody stole the body of Jesus. John sees and believes. Peter sees and doesn't know what to think of everything that he had seen. And so what is going on here is that they are furiously thinking with being presented with this situation. They are detecting. They are putting pieces together. And you might be saying, why are you pointing this out? Because there are some of you that are here today or you're watching online and you struggle with the resurrection of Jesus because you haven't been able to rationalize it. You haven't been able to think it through. You haven't been able to put the pieces together. And some of you believe that the reason that there are Christians today is because for some reason they just decided one morning to get up and say, okay, I believe. I'm just going to trust it all and I'm just going to dive into belief without ever thinking anything through. And I want you to understand this morning that the resurrection of Jesus took a great deal of evidence, a, a whole lot of reasoning, a lot of detective work for you to end up at a place where you can say without a shadow of a doubt, I believe in a risen Jesus who has transformed my life. We didn't just decide to believe that. There was evidence involved. But there are people that think that's how the Christian faith works. You You just choose to believe. In fact, I'll even go so far as to say this. If your Christian faith has not been shot through with all sorts of reasoning and thinking and evidence, it will never hold you up during the ups and downs of life. You better know that what you believe is true. Christian faith is obviously more than reasoning, but you need to know it's not less than. You say, well, that's great. The people that we read about in the scripture, they had stuff to look at. What about us? What about us? What do we have that we can reason and look at? What do we have? Well, let me tell you, there's a great deal of evidence that we have as well. In fact, there's actually a whole lot of evidence that I do not have time to get into this morning. But one of the things that is evidential in all of this is Mary Magdalene herself. Tim Keller points out that Celsius, who was a second century Greek philosopher who was an opponent of early Christianity. In fact, he wrote one of the first intellectual attacks on Christianity. He hated Christians. And he wrote, he said, I'll show you why this does not 
philosophically work on why Christianity is not true. And one of his main attacks on Christianity was because of Mary Magdalene. Now get ready for this. I recognize I'm speaking to New Yorkers and New York women in particular. But this is what he wrote. How can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical, or a hysterical female? Now, he's already dead, can't do anything to him. The reason that he was able to say that is because he lived in a time that we would call a, a misogynist time, a time in which the status of women was very, very low. It's also true that every single one of the gospel accounts in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John all say that the first witnesses of the risen Jesus Christ were women. And therefore, what Celsius did was actually expected that you would think that this would be the Achilles heel that would bring down Christianity for all time. It was the issue that people thought would absolutely put a stop to the movement. People said, how do you expect us to believe the resurrection of Jesus if women were the first witnesses? But little did they know that time would change and that we would move forward thousands of years. And today we look at this and it doesn't astound us at all. In fact, what they thought would bring down Christianity has not done it at all because today we recognize this is a valid story. Historians will say, if you were inventing a story about the resurrection, you would never put women in it in those days. You would never write women in as the first witnesses. So the only historical, plausible explanation for why women in the gospel accounts are the first witnesses, the only explanation is because they were. You would not have written it that way. There's no other reason. And then there are this, that the aspect of the eyewitnesses. In fact, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is about 20 years after the death of Jesus, he wrote it in such a way that it is a public document written so that the people who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus could give their stories. And he says this, there were hundreds and hundreds of people who saw the risen Jesus. Scores of times, not just once. In fact, one time, 500 people saw the risen Jesus at once. And Paul said, this is public knowledge. Most of those people he wrote and said, they're still alive if you would like to go. Find them in their villages and towns and ask them what it was like for them. They will tell you this was evidential. Hundreds of people were eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. We know that as fact. So for those of you that are looking at the resurrection story saying, you know, if I just had some evidence, then let me tell you, there's a lot of evidence. This is rational evidence. Above and beyond that, we get to the point where there were people whose lives were radically changed instantaneously because of their interaction with Jesus. Radically changed. You will notice that Peter and John needed evidence to believe. In fact, Mary needed more than evidence. She needed to actually see him. And you may say, well, I, I don't want to be nasty or I don't want to be condescending to those people that lived so many years ago, but today aren't we quite a bit smarter than they are? Wasn't it been that they would have been so easily duped in that day that they would believe in miracles and things like that? What you need to understand is that before Jesus came and even after Jesus came, there were a lot of messianic pretenders that had come. 
There were a number of people who came along and said, I am the Messiah and I'm going to lead Israel and and I'm going to throw off the yoke of the oppressors. And in every one of those cases, they raised up a group of people that would be insurgents with them and then the leader of that was killed and the people would go, "Uh, oops, I, I guess he wasn't really the one that was going to lead us out. In every one of those cases, nobody ever asked the question, well, maybe he'll be resurrected. And the reason they never asked that question is because while some Jews believed that there was going to be a resurrection, what they believed is that it would be at the end of time and everybody would be resurrected together. They never once expected that the Messiah would be resurrected in the middle of time. It would have been something brand new to them. It was inconceivable to their worldview. So what happens when Jesus is resurrected? It's evidence, brand new evidence, and enough eyewitness evidence that made the resurrection of Jesus believable and life-changing. Interesting enough, there is a Japanese writer. His name is Shusako Indu, and he puts it like this. He said, if you don't believe in the resurrection... You're going to be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet with equal force to its electrifying intensity. Something happened to them. And if you don't believe in the resurrection, you're going to have to come up with something else that is just as powerful in its results. He said, and in trying to explain the changed lives of the early Christians, you may find yourselves making leaps of faith just as great as if you believed in the resurrection itself. There's a lot more evidence than that, and I want you to go and find it. For those of you that are skeptical, let me encourage you to read the book by Lee Strobel, A Case for Faith. You will discover the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus being very rational But that also leads us to the second part, and it's very merciful. Look at what Jesus does with Mary. First of all, look look how gentle he is with her. He's asking her questions in this time when when she is so burdened, and, and he is engaging her. One commentator points out that in spite of the fact that Mary is a very admirable person, and in, and in so many ways, we see her story and we love her. She is so passionate for Christ that she seems to be more of a lover of Jesus Christ than the disciples are. And she is just weeping. She's there in the twilight time and she's crying and she's going, where is he? And yet we understand that even in her love for him, her view of Jesus was way too small. As much as she loves him, she's looking for a dead Jesus. In fact, when she thought Jesus was the gardener, I find this incredible statement. She goes, just tell me where he is and I'll go get him. Like she was strong enough to drag the body of a dead man around. That's where she was in her mindset. She's looking for a small Jesus. She's looking for a Jesus that would fit into her her worldview and into her human categories. She's looking for a wonderful rabbi, a wonderful teacher, a godly man, a miracle worker. But her cultural categories keeps him too small. And Jesus needs to reveal himself to her. One commentator said, Jesus wanted Mary to recognize that as grand as her devotion to him was, her estimate of him was way too small. You see, Mary had had conversations with Jesus, and she knew that Jesus said that he was the light of the world. She'd heard that. Jesus had said, I am the judge that's going to come back, and I'm going to judge the world. And she had heard that. 
He said, I am going to die and rise again. And she had heard that. But her human categories wouldn't let her see him as he was. And so he had to come through all of that. So how does he do that? He does not return and reveal himself like Superman does. If you recall, those of you who are Superman fans, you'll know that when he returns, he catches a fallen airliner. He brings it right down into a full stadium, millions of people watching on TV, and the hero returns. Everybody sees his power. That's how superheroes return. But that's not what Jesus did. No flash. He simply says to her, why are you crying? Would you describe for me, Mary, the person that you were looking for? And in this, we, we behold the gentleness of Jesus. He is risen, but he is still gentle. But more than that, the way the risen Christ meets Mary is in some ways the summary of the whole message of the Bible. You know why? It's because of this. As much as she loved him, as much as she knew him, and as much as she is an admirable character in the book, she never would have found Jesus if he hadn't come and found her. She was looking for him, but she's looking for a dead Jesus. She was looking for a human Jesus, and she would never have ever, ever found him unless he pursues her and revealed who he was to her. Humanly speaking, we look at that and say, faith is impossible. But let me tell you something. The reason that this is so encapsulating is because we see on our vision statement up here, locally to globally, pursuing every heart with the love of Jesus. Where did we learn that from? Jesus' pursuit of Mary, who would never have found him had she not been pursued. Why do we pursue the lost? Because there's so many, whether you're watching online or here, you may not know him, but the Savior is pursuing you this morning to reveal himself. And the only way that we can come to know him is if he breaks through the barriers of the boxes that we have put him in. And even your reasoning will go nowhere unless the Holy Spirit helps you come to know him. So in some ways, the story of the risen Jesus meeting Mary is a summary of, of the message of the whole Bible because he has to reveal himself to you because our hearts and minds are too small to capture him. Everything in our life tries to shrink Jesus to fit into our human categories. Only Jesus can burst those categories for you, and he will come gently when he does. And maybe the most telling thing about this passage that tells us about the wonderful mixture of grace and mercy is the fact that Jesus chose Mary to be the first messenger to the world. She's the first person in history to have met the risen Savior and Jesus told her, go tell everyone else. Now I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. Let me remind you of who Mary Magdalene was. In Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, it tells us that in her history, she had had seven demons cast out of her. 
Now, whatever you may think about demon possession and and how people act and all of that, let me just remind you that in Mark chapter 5, we are given an idea of a demoniac and how they acted during that particular time. And it was people who apparently walked around half naked. They talked to themselves. They were hearing voices. They were crying out and yelling at people. They were socially outcast. Basically, they were homeless people, and, and nobody wanted to be around them. And Jesus, after the resurrection meets Mary and this woman that was formerly possessed by multiple demons who's not a pillar in the community. And he says to her, you are my messenger. Now let me interpret that for you for just a moment. How much more vivid and powerful can the message of Jesus Christ be than when he says, I do not save you on the basis of your pedigree. I do not save you on the basis of your moral attainment. I don't save you on the basis of your public record or your personal life. I could care less about what you were like before I came into your life because I'm going to erase it anyway. The only thing that matters to me is that people need to understand you can never be too strong, but you can be weak enough to find a savior that says, When you touch my life, I'll change everything for you. And we look at this and the situation that's going on here and we go, behold the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And it leads us to one last thing. The resurrection is profoundly personal. It's not just that Jesus saves by grace, but that after he saves us, he gives himself to us. He gives himself to us. There are a lot of things that Jesus could have said to Mary here. And it's really intriguing to me because there's the paradigm that's going on here that's developing. Jesus is showing the world how he relates to us here. So how does he reveal himself to her? He doesn't stand in front of her in the twilight and jump out and goes, it's me. He doesn't go, hey, don't you know who I am? She's crying and he doesn't wipe her tears away and say, hey, I just look closely. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't say, Mary, it's me. He says, Mary. Basically he's saying, Mary, it's you. I'm wanting to reveal you. He doesn't say, Miss Magdalene. He approaches her and what is going on is in this encounter he reveals who she is and in the process reveals himself annie dillard who is a pulitzer prize-winning novelist said this i have been my whole life a bell and i didn't know it until i was lifted up and rung there is no place in history that is certainly more current in Western culture as it relates to our identity. We are more obsessed with identity here than any place else in the world. We are always trying to find out who we are. And and the cultural narrative that we live in right now is this. If you will just look inside yourself, then you can decide who you are, and then you assert it. And, And you can assert it so strongly that it gives the appearance that you don't care what anybody else thinks. And in that assertion, 
What you don't realize is it leaves individuals incredibly fragile. Not only because current culture is lying to you, but because you lie to yourself about your need for outside approval. So desperate is the human need for recognition and approval that culture will go to any means necessary to force others to recognize and approve of your personal assertion. What you don't know is that culture will ultimately enslave you because of it. And because we are social beings, we are never going to be secure in our identity just by looking inside of ourselves and asserting who we want to be. No. The way you become secure in your identity is that somebody who you adore adores you back. Someone you respect respects you. Someone you love comes and affirms you. And Jesus, in his encounter with Mary, is saying, I, the greatest being in the universe, speaking not just to Mary, but to every one of us this morning, says this to you, I love you personally. I love you expensively. And I love you eternally. And this is what he says when he calls her by name, Mary, Mary. And he reveals himself and he reveals her true identity. He is saying, listen, Mary, I love you, and I am not the dead founder of an ethical religion that you can somehow get to know by just following the rules. I am the living Savior, and in knowing me, you will finally know who you really are. And that's the call to us today. Regardless of what you may think of yourself, I want you to know that it's in intersecting the grace of Jesus Christ that you finally are revealed that the creator reveals who you are and who he is to you and it changes everything. And it concludes by saying, don't hold on to me, Mary. Please don't touch me because she wanted to hug him. She would fit right in in this church. And he goes, please don't touch me. Not because I am untouchable but because what I'm about to do is go to heaven and I'm going to send back the Holy Spirit which will live within you and you will never be without me again and folks we live in the day and age where when you have come to Jesus Christ and you ask him to change you to forgive you to release you from your past he comes and indwells you and the presence of the living God lives within each of us and we are not alone he says, the more you love me and know me as the risen Lord, the more you will find out who you are, Mary, for your identity and your security and who you are are wrapped up in me. And that's what makes the resurrection so incredibly personal. Jesus gives us our identity through his mercy and grace. Kim, if you'd please come. I conclude with this story. Dorothy Sayers is an author that was born in the late 1800s and she lived through the late 1950s. She was one of the first women who ever graduated from Oxford. She was best known as a crime mystery novelist who had a character that she featured in a series of novels that she wrote who was an English aristocrat. He was a detective. The books were all about him being a sleuth and his name was Lord Peter Whimsey. That was the character that she wrote. Interesting enough, halfway through the series that she had written about him, 
Suddenly there's this woman character that shows up in her books and the woman's character's name is Harriet Vane who just so happened to be one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford who just so happened to be a character that as she was being written about was also a mystery novelist and who described herself in the book as wasn't particularly good looking. Now, I'll let you look her up and determine whether or not you felt her, her, her self-description was accurate or not. And people are looking at the books that she is writing and they're going, just a minute. Who, who is this Harriet Vane character? And many people believe that Dorothy Sayers, while writing about Lord Whimsey, discovered that she had written about a man that was incredibly lonely. And so she wrote herself into the story. And for the remainder of that series, Lord Whimsey in a relationship with Harriet Vane begins to find salvation. And as I look at that today, I want you to know something. That's what Jesus did. Jesus looks at each of us in our story and he sees that without him, we are incredibly lonely. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to go. We can't find ourselves. Don't know who our identity is. So he wrote himself into our story. And Easter is about Jesus overcoming death, hell, the grave, and our sin. That when he rose from the dead, he interjects his grace and mercy into our lives as we receive him. He wrote himself into your story.